Acts 21, verses 1 through 14. There's a lot of reading here that I want to do for you, and, and a lot of words that some of you won't pronounce anyway, so I'll go ahead and read it. In verse 1, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, that is, Luke speaking about leaving the elders of Ephesus in Miletus and traveling with Paul and the other companions. It came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Clues the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way. We went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, his sash, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and, from, and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you and bless you and praise you for your precious and holy word. We ask now, Lord, that you would bless and anoint us with your Holy Spirit. Grant us your wisdom and understanding. Help us, Lord God, to be able to take these words and apply them, Lord, to our lives. To look at the heart of a man like Paul and to see the richness of his love for you and his love for his people, Israel, and his love for the church. And to know, Lord God, that that is not outside of our reach, to have that same love and that same heart. Strengthen us, Lord God, in these truths today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While there are, were many lessons learned, from that momentous day, most people simply call 
The general public came away from that experience having been instructed in new terminology and understanding. For example, we learned a new term, the term first responder. We came to realize what that meant. It meant this, crisis responders, emergency personnel, law enforcement and firefighters who run towards danger while others run away from it. That's what we learned about a first responder. A crisis responder who either is an emergency personnel worker, a law enforcement officer, a firefighter, who run towards danger while others are running away from it. And I think that you would agree with me that most, if not all, who run from danger appreciate and salute those who are trained to run towards it to help others. And I really don't think that it would cheapen that phrase, first responder, if today I apply it to the Apostle Paul. Think of the emotional farewell shared by Paul in the Ephesian, uh, with the Ephesian elders and the words that the Apostle used in deciding to run towards the dangers in Jerusalem. Go back, if you will, a half a page or so to Acts chapter 20, uh, down to verse 22, if you will. And listen once again to the words of Paul when he says, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit in every city that I go to testifies that these things are going to await me, change tribulations. Do you notice the attitude and the perspective that Paul has about his calling. I'm bound, he says, to go. What is the perspective of the churches? Don't go. Paul says, I gotta go. That's why I entitled this message, You Say No, I Say Go. Now some have believed that Paul could have been wrong in going. There are many commentators. I, I was amazed at uh, seeing how many commentators you know, looked into that particular thought that Paul may have been wrong or even reckless in going to Jerusalem. So we're going to deal with that particular thought today as we go through the Word. So remember that that's what Paul told them. He says, I, I'm bound to go. I, you know, I know that these things you know, the Holy Spirit has been bringing up, but they, they don't move me. Because I don't count my life dear to myself. I want to finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord. Not from disciples, not from apostles, not from the church, not from elders, not from councils, not from committees, but from Jesus himself. To testify to the gospel 
of the grace of God. Paul had said a lot of things to them in Acts chapter 20, to the Ephesian elders. He said a lot of things to them, but let us consider the one thing that they would remember. I hope that isn't the way of church, but you know, sometimes I can say a whole lot of stuff in 45 minutes, let's say, and you remember one thing. Well, I hope that one thing's a good thing. Paul spoke to them all night long about things that were of great importance to them. But what did they remember? Look at uh, verses 36 to 38 of Acts chapter 20, the last part of the, the previous chapter. He's, it says, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all, notice, for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. That's, what they all, that's all they remembered. That Paul had said, you know, I may not see your face again. And that's what they remembered the most. That they wouldn't see his face no more. And they accompanied him to his ship. And, and as we pick up in chapter 21, the trauma of Paul's departure from those he had spent the better part of three years with continues to be expressed in a short and simple statement in verse 1 of chapter 21. It came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kus, the following day to Rhodes, from there to Patera. Well, that little phrase, when we had departed from them, you notice it's underlined here, I want you to see it. When we had departed from them, so great <coughs> was the love the Ephesian elders had for Paul that they had to literally tear himself. He had to literally tear himself away from his sorrowing friends. That's what that word departed means there. When we had departed from them, it is a word that says they, he had to literally tear himself away from them. Because they did not want him to go. That's how much they loved Paul. That's how much they cared for this man who loved them by giving them what they needed most, which was God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's word. You know, that could be considered parting with great difficulty. I think it was. Because you know, you know that you may never see that person again. And what we discover along the way with Paul and his companions is that this love for the Apostle existed throughout his travels, especially as he heads for Jerusalem. But Paul's love, while it was always extended toward his children in the faith throughout all the region of the Gentile regions where he preached and he taught, was consistently, that love was consistently for his people, the Jewish people. That was where his love really lay. And he had a genuine love for the Gentiles. He loved them dearly. But he loved the Jews because he was a Jew. We see that in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Spirit, Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, 
who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, was over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He says, I, I, I could wish that myself were a curse for them. I would be a curse so that they would know Christ. And then in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. If you start getting a, a little bit of the picture here of, of Paul's desire to go to Jerusalem, even though so many things are being said to him and said of him, Paul, don't go. The Spirit says this is going to happen to you. Don't go. And no matter what you and I might think as to whether Paul should have listened to all the warnings about the dangers in Jerusalem awaiting him. And again, I bring up the fact that, you know, you can look at all various commentaries of the book of Acts. And, you know, it, it, uh, there's many different views of this. And again, was Paul right or was he wrong? Was he right or was he reckless in going to Jerusalem, in wanting to go to Jerusalem? Bottom line is this, it doesn't matter what you think or what I think. Paul was bound in obedience as well to go there to minister to his people because of this command early on in the book of Acts. I want you to turn all the way back to Acts chapter 9. Paul has met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul is, is, is affected in his, in, 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 his, in his life, his body. Is, he can't see. He's been blinded by this, this tremendous light. Can't speak. And a disciple named Ananias takes him into his home. And God speaks to Ananias and he says to him in Acts 9 verses 15 and 16, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and notice, and the children of Israel. Paul took this seriously. Paul took this seriously as his calling. For I will show him many things, Jesus said. I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And that's the one thing that a lot of people miss in that calling of Paul. He's called to the Gentiles and he's called to the children of Israel. And he says, I'll show him many things that he must suffer. <clears throat> Paul was ready for it. And what we have to remember, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but, but listen. Every warning that we have in life is to help us, to keep us alert, to keep us awake, but it's also there to make us ready. Every warning about what can happen in, in any kind of situation is to make us ready. And that's how Paul took it. Every warning, I need to be ready, because I know these things await. But they don't move me. Because I don't consider myself greater than anything or anyone. I don't consider my life dear to myself. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he was bound by obedience. So we get to our text here in chapter 1. And if you remember, by the way, that Paul always went to the synagogue first, that's another indication that he loved his people. 
that he loved the Jews. He always went to the synagogue first in most cases. So we see how and why his heart leaned so heavily towards Jerusalem. Now we see Paul and his companions sailing south from Asia Minor toward the coast of Israel to eventually dock at the coastal city of Caesarea. And again, I read this as a part of the travel log, so you'll see, you know, you can, you can look at the maps in the back of your Bible. Usually there's a map of Paul's journeys. This would be the third missionary journey coming to an end. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kuz the following day to Rhodes, from there to Patera, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Those three first cities were all reached a day each. Kuz one day, the next uh, Rhodes, and then Patera, each one. So that was a three-day journey there. But then they found the ship sailing to Phoenicia. They went aboard, they set sail, and we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left. Sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. That gave Paul an opportunity to do something. Look at verse 4. And finding disciples. What you don't get in that phrase in the Greek is that he went intensely to search for disciples, and then he found them. But it says, in finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and we went our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So they hopped, they skipped, and they jumped. The first three cities in three days, Kos, or Kuz, Road, and Patera. The next leg of the trip was a distance of about 400 miles uh, to Phoenicia, which of course took a little bit longer. And while the shipmates unloaded the ship's cargo and tire, that's when Paul took that opportunity to intensely search for be- uh, fellow believers. The word finding there implying how intense the search may have been since the Christians there were not discipled by Paul. Now Paul discipled many people in various parts of the world, but he didn't disciple them in Tyre or in Phoenicia as it were. And the reason is because it was due to a persecution that was given in Jerusalem by Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus or when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, you'll notice it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, and if you remember, it was Saul of Tarsus that commissioned Stephen to be stoned. Or at least he was one of those who commissioned him to be stoned. It says that after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as uh, the, the, the church traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So those who were scattered went to Phoenicia. That was where the church was. Paul didn't disciple them. Paul didn't start that. Well, in a way, he kind of started, the, started it getting them out to Phoenicia. But uh, he didn't start that church. And so you, get, you have this other element of, 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 of tension here because you think, oh, here's, here are these people who left... Uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding regions to go to Phoenicia to live there and now they're Christians and now they hear that Paul's coming or they hear that Paul's looking for them 
So they have to kind of, okay, well now we've heard that Paul is a Christian, so there, there may have been a little bit of attention uh, getting there, but they stayed seven days, so that's a good sign. And they had fellowship with one another. By the way, Paul wasn't concerned with sightseeing. I, I have to mention that here, because when in Rhodes, uh, they could have seen the remains of one of the seven wonders of the world, that great colossus of Rhodes, that great hundred-foot statue uh, that was at... Uh, you know, there in the harbor, as, as, as boats were coming in, this grand statue stood there. Uh, it was erected somewhere in the 275 B.C. or so. And about 54 years later, there was an earthquake. And, you know, Colossus came crashing down. Ended up actually being a, a ruin out there. And it stayed out there for many, many years. Almost 800 years. So it would have been a sight to see. And I know they didn't have... It wasn't a Kodak moment for Paul to go and take a picture of some big giant... Uh, statue that was laying down on its belly or whatever. Uh, you know, so he, he wasn't concerned about that. Instead, he was concerned about the effects of the cross of Jesus Christ in the lives of believers wherever he went. So he wanted to meet the, the, the church entire. That shows again the heart of Paul for the church. And during the seven days they stayed entire with the believers, Paul is once again confronted with a warning of danger in Jerusalem. But this time, the warning sounds like a prohibition. Listen, verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. So now we have to face an apparent contradiction. Now there are in the Scriptures apparent contradictions. Notice I said apparent contradictions. I can say confidently that there are no contradictions in the Bible. But there are at times apparent contradictions. Contradictions that may look like contradictions, but they're not really. Until you, you kind of have to search it out and you have to work through this, reading and knowing, understanding, you know, the language of what's being said. So, here's an apparent contradiction. And it appears in this passage that the Spirit is saying one thing to the believers, while we know what Paul has said in Acts 20 verse 22. What did Paul say in Acts 20, verse 22? He says, Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. So these disciples are saying one thing, and they're saying it through the Spirit. And Paul is saying another thing, and saying, I'm bound in the Spirit. Now some people will say, Yes, but brother, look at the translation here. And in Acts chapter 21, verse 4, the word Spirit is capitalized. And over in chapter 20, verse 22, it isn't. And I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? Because if you look at the Greek language, there are no capitals. Or if you read a certain text, they're all capitals. So who's right and who's wrong? So you can't use the argument of a capital in the English, okay? That's an idea expressed into the text. I don't like that. So you have to, you have to dig deeper to find out who's saying what. So if in verse 4 then, the Spirit refers to their own human spirit, that would mean they naturally didn't want any harm to come to Paul. So they would say, you know, don't go to Jerusalem. Others have been saying that. But if you read before, you don't see any prohibition by the Holy Spirit. So if this was just their own human spirit saying it, it was because they didn't want any harm to come to Paul. Now, if it was referring to the Holy Spirit, then they misapplied the warning, assuming that it was a prohibition, rather than a forewarning, which is what Paul had been receiving all along the way. Paul had been given warnings. 
Paul, this is going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. Paul, this is going to happen to you. Paul sees it and says, it's okay. I'm not moved by those things. I'm going because I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So who's right and who's wrong? It isn't a prohibition by God yet. We haven't seen one. But then notice in verse 5, let's go on. When we had come to the end of those days, seven days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. The whole church, with all the family, came with Paul and his, and, his accompan- uh, and his companions. And they went out to the shore. And they went and they prayed. Notice, and we knelt down on the shore and they prayed. There, in a very pagan city. The Christians loved Paul so much that they didn't want him to go into any harm. But when Paul was determined, they went with him and they prayed with him. They knelt down on the shore. And notice that nobody came around saying, listen, you Christians can't pray here. There's a separation of church and state. You Christians can't do that. You know what? We're hearing that in our country where we have the freedom to pray how we want to pray and in whose name we want to pray, which is in the name of Jesus Christ. No, they just went to the shore and they prayed. Now that was a Kodak moment. Of course, they didn't have cameras back then. But that would have been a wonderful picture. Kneeling and praying on the shore as Paul prepares to go more toward Jerusalem. And so it says that when we had taken our leave from one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. When we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. It, it, you know, it just comes back to mind, you know, this beautiful picture of how close this church had become to the heart of the Apostle Paul in such a short time. The fact that all the families accompanied Paul and his companions all the way to the shore to pray with him is, is that testament of family time spent with fellow believers in church as better than family time away from church. Think about that for a moment. What better place to have family time than to have it together at church when the church meets in the name of Christ? And again, in Ptolemais, they sought out the local church for fellowship. So that was just what they wanted to do. We came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, stayed with them one day. And then verse 8, it says, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, the sash around Paul, Some believe it may have been even that prayer shawl that had the corners, uh, the, uh, the fringes on the corners. They took Paul's belt, or Agabus took it, and he bound his own hands and feet. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now we have to listen. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit. 
So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a prohibition or does it just sound like a warning? It doesn't sound like the Holy Spirit is prohibiting Paul to go. He's saying whoever owns this belt is going to be bound by it. Or at least bound when he gets to Jerusalem. Think about that for a moment. Philip the deacon had become Philip the evangelist about 20 years previous to this encounter with Paul. In fact, having been associated, uh, an associate deacon with Stephen... For him to meet with Paul had to have been quite a meeting. Philip had preached to the Samaritans. A revival broke out in Samaria. He preached the gospel to a single Ethiopian eunuch on the desert road to Gaza. Baptized him and from that meeting a church would later be founded in Ethiopia. Philip made an impact in his ministry for the gospel of Christ. But now Philip settled down and had four daughters who prophesied. Now, if this information was for anyone, for Luke to write down that Philip had four daughters and they were uh, prophetesses, as it were, why does he do that? And, and then just kind of gives us that information and passes it on. Was this information important for anyone? I believe it was important for the Apostle Paul to hear this, to know this, for two reasons. And actually for us too, but for two reasons. Here to make it very clear that God uses whoever he wants to use as a prophet. But then there's this other thing that we need to consider. It was for Paul to rejoice. To know that Philip had these four daughters who prophesied. It was for him to rejoice. Why? Because as Saul of Tarsus, his effect upon families during his persecution of the church left many of them in many cases separated and even destroyed. That was the effect of Saul of Tarsus upon the church. And to hear that Philip the evangelist had a family and his daughters were all serving the Lord and prophesying was a great joy. Because you see, what Saul may have meant for evil, God meant for good. What Saul had meant for evil, God meant for good. And Philip's family was proof of God's providential care. And when you read Romans 8.28, when Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, now we kind of see how that applies to Paul. Because what Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, meant for evil, God meant for good. Brings to mind Joseph. Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers who hated him. And sold into slavery, they really wanted to kill him. They figured, well, if he's sold into slavery, you know, somehow he'll probably end up dead. So he'll be out of our hands. And Joseph would live in Egypt and he would even be put into prison unjustly for 13 years until the Lord in his providential work brought Joseph up into the ranks of Egypt so that when 
Jacob's sons would come for help. Joseph would be there to reveal himself to them and say, I'm your brother. And what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he took care of his family and all of Israel. Great lesson for us to always keep in our hearts. But then we are reintroduced now to a prophet named Agabus here in our text, who had at one time worked with Paul on a famine relief program. If you go back, if you will, to Acts 11 and verse 27. It says, And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which, was hap- which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his own ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And that, of course, is Paul. So Agabus has worked with Paul before. Agabus was a prophet who was indeed a prophet of the Lord. So when we see here in our text... You'd have to consider this Agabus as an old school type of a prophet. Like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel. Who at times God commanded to use certain props or dramatic renderings to accentuate the prophecy given. And so we see this was the case with Agabus. As he uses Paul's belt to illustrate what would happen to Paul in Jerusalem, which... Uh, led to even the apostles' traveling companions to, to join in with all the churches in echoing their concerns to Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So it got now to the point where the people traveling with Paul were saying exactly what all the people were doing in the cities. Paul, don't go! Look at verse uh, 12. Now when we heard these things, the we says Luke and the traveling companions, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? And this is not a, you know, Billy Ray Silas, uh, achy, breaky heart moment here, okay? That's not the kind of breaking heart that he's talking about. He says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. Now please understand that they loved Paul so much that they didn't want any harm to come to him. Isn't that a natural thing? It's a natural thing for us now, for, uh, for, for, for no one to go into some situation and be harmed in it. Years and years ago, you know, we, we, would, uh, we would hear of a, of a missionary who would come and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be going here or there. And, uh, you know, we would pray for them and we would always say, well, we, we're going to pray that nothing hurts you, harms you, you know. Because that's our concern. That's, that's the kind of hearts God has given us. You know, we don't want harm to come on anyone. Nowadays, you know, if we hear somebody's going to come, even you know, we have our missionaries in Juarez. And with everything going on over there, 
We want to pull them right out. But follow through with me here for just a moment. They pleaded with these fellow believers to Paul not to go. That was love. That love did not persuade Paul from going since there was another love at work. Their love persuaded Paul not to go, but Paul wasn't persuaded because there was another love at work. The love that they have for Paul isn't a bad love because you see Jesus did command us to love one another. John 13 verses 34 and 35, Jesus said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So granted, we're to love one another that way. That love should be the rule of our lives. But love for Christ overrules the love for one another in this sense. And I want you to listen to what Paul said in verse 13. Paul answered and said, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I, am not, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, the word breaking there means to weaken. And so Paul asked him, What do you mean by weeping and weakening my heart? In other words, they were weakening Paul's resolve to obey the Lord. I remember coming into the ministry back almost 25 years ago. As a matter of fact, in December, I'm going to celebrate 25 years as a pastor. I didn't realize it until I looked at a calendar. Man, you're old. I'm just kidding. But as I looked at that, I started thinking about the process when it came time to realize that there was a calling that God had given to me. There were people, there were certain people in my life, and they were good, well-meaning people. But some of them says, you know, you, sh- you should really pray because I don't think this is what God wants for you. No, I, I you know, I, I respected them. And I respected what they were saying. And I think they were saying it with the right intention. But I had to respect more what God was saying. So as God was leading me into this, I couldn't put that aside. I couldn't put it down. I certainly listened, but I said, but that, you know what? I know what God's telling me. I know what God is leading me to do. So as well-intentioned as they may be, I must do what Jesus says. I must follow what He called me to do. So sometimes that persuading is to weaken the resolve, whether people understand that or not, to obey the Lord. Now, they were focusing on his spiritual well-being. They were focusing on his physical well-being, too. But Paul had a spiritual well-being to consider and that of his Jewish brethren as well. And sometimes this kind of pleading hinders rather than helps. And I want you to listen to what James writes in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Because this is for all believers... 
And I don't want to hinder what God wants to do through the trials that He may be putting you through this week. But James writes in James 1 uh, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James is not saying, listen, uh, I, I don't want you to go in that, in that direction because it may hurt you. What he's saying is kind of the joy if you face trials, because those trials are going to produce something in you that you need, that God wants you to have. And we're not called to hinder that, but to help people understand that. Why is it that David, uh, well, we say it's David, it could have been uh, any of the other psalmists, but in Psalm 119, David says, It is good that I've been afflicted, that I may know thy statutes. If we believe that all things work together for good, listen, Paul is saying, I know what God has called me to do. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And you think that that's only James saying it. What about Jesus? When Jesus says in chapter 16, verses 31 to 33, Jesus says to his disciples, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Do you notice that he doesn't say you might have tribulation? He says, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus isn't trying to dissuade them from facing the trials. He just saying, listen, I'm going to be with you through them. I'm going to keep you through them. I'll be with you. Who did Paul know was with him? He knew that the Lord was with him. So he wouldn't be moved by these things. So that Paul could later write in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul understood But all the warnings were to make him ready. Listen, we have warnings all around us, don't we? Street signs, street warnings all the time, you know. If we would pay attention to them, they benefit us. Speed limits. Yield signs, stop signs. They're all for our good if we'll pay attention to them. Paul was given all these warnings. God was preparing him for Jerusalem. But people say, oh, but you know what? When Paul went to Jerusalem, you know, uh, his, his success seemed to have, have, have faltered there. You know, there weren't as many people coming to Christ anymore. There wasn't revival happening here and there. And eventually he fades away. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. The Bible teaches us one thing, if it teaches us anything at all about success in ministry and it is this I've said it many times the level of success or the measure of success of a believer in Jesus Christ is not numbers it is obedience 
A measure of success of a believer in Jesus Christ is not numbers or some great amount of, of, of work of whatever kind. It is obedience. The measure of success for a believer is obedience to God and to Christ. So, what happens now? They've expressed their concerns. And Paul makes it very clear. Listen. He says, are you trying to weaken my resolve? He says, I'm not only ready to go, I'm ready to die. When they hear this, Paul's companions resign to the will of the Lord, as we all should do. Look at verse 14 one more time. We're going to close here. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. You see, they had tremendous love and respect for Paul. And they were respecting of Paul because he allowed them to express themselves. But once Paul said, this is it, they said, then this is it. They see saying, the will of the Lord be done. Paul was ready to die for Christ at any time. The overruling love for his Savior and Lord was Paul's confidence and courage. It was Paul's confidence and courage. The overruling love of Christ. So much so that when he writes, and by the way, don't say that Paul wasn't successful because we get this beautiful letter from Paul in prison to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he says in verses 6 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is success. And then he says, Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. It has been said, Our love for one another is at its highest and best when it is overruled by our love for Jesus Christ. Then it will want what is highest for a brother or sister, even if it is to endure hardship and count it all joy in the midst of their trials and tribulations. Oh, that God would teach you through every trial. I don't want to hinder that in your life. And I don't want you to hinder that in mine. I want you to know that at the end of every trial, God is still with you. I want you to know that at the beginning of that trial, God is with you. I want you to know that while you're going through the midst of those trials, God says, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Paul knew that. And we need to learn that. Now you see the heart of Paul as a first responder going into danger when many have come out. what we have to attach ourselves to is to the heart that says I am ready I am ready look at verse 13 for I am ready 
You see, that tells me one thing. Paul was right. Because Paul listened to his Lord. Today, we want to listen to what the Lord has to say as we take the bread and the cup. And may the things that we've learned in God's Word today be brought to some understanding in what Jesus did in going to the cross. Let's pray.